I was a broken former professional athlete. That's who I was. The head injury, the hit, basically completely knocked my train off the track. Welcome to Humbled, a podcast about athlete identity. I'm Kristen Haroldstadter, your host. And I'm Aaron Ernst, the producer for Humboldt. On today's podcast, I sit down with Brianna Scurry, the goalie for the U.S. women's national soccer team during its rise in popularity in the late 90s and early 2000s. She helped to found the Women's United Soccer League, which was the world's first women's professional league in the sport, where all the players actually got paid. And she also won two World Cups as the starting goalie, has two Olympic gold medals, and played professionally until she was 38. So the way I actually was able to meet Brianna and ask her to come on the podcast is I was super lucky and got to attend a Women's Sports Foundation event last fall where Brianna was speaking on a panel about mental health. I actually have this really cool and very strong memory from when I was 13 years old and I watched the final game of the 1999 World Cup with my soccer team where she had just this incredible save and penalty kicks against China that led the U.S. to the gold medal. I talked with her about those types of experiences and really how so much of her story is based on her love for strategy. And as we heard in the introductory bite from Brianna, you also talked with her about how not only did her career end, but really life as she knew it changed in so many other ways. Yeah, it did. And she really opened up to me. She gave us a firsthand account of that concussion, which ended her career, which she initially did not expect it to do and how the shock of just losing this identity she'd had so long almost ended in tragedy. Um, And so, as you'll hear from Brianna's story, it's amazing how one hit out of her entire career caused her life to spiral out of control. So stay with us until the very end, uh, because there is a good ending in this. She talks about how the skills she learned throughout this entire journey helped her to survive and eventually rebuild her life. First of all, thank you. This is so crazy for me to get to do this. I was uh, working on this a couple nights ago, remembering 1999. I was on the U14 YZ Wings premiere (laughs) team, and (laughs) all of us got together. You know, it's like 19, 14-year-old girls or whatever we were. We all got together at this girl's um, house out in Bloomington, and she had this big living room and we like we all brought snacks and we're watching that final game and and just like it was like probably the first time I can remember actually being emotional as a child like apart from like something like personal oh my god it was so exciting um yeah so I I know this is like that I love the stories I'm honored thank you for sharing that with me I always appreciate that it's interesting you say that it wasn't it wasn't my 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 initial you know aim but it's really kind of neat to to hear the stories afterwards because it it's become more meaningful to me in my you know later years now that I'm into my late forties um, than sometimes the actual like training and playing and all of that like the way it's impacted people because that's like the bigger purpose right yeah and uh, it really is 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 a, a neat feeling to be able to have have done that for someone so thank you for sharing that with me. Oh, yeah, God, of course. All right. So I'm just going to start with some softballs just to get us moving and and warmed up here. Um, But what role did sports play in your life when you were growing up? So as a kid? Wow. You know, sports were a huge part of my of my youth 
Um, I played different sports. I started soccer at age 12, but I also played tackle football in fourth and fifth grade, full pads, the whole nine yards, one of only two girls in the whole league. Loved that. And also, you know, uh, floor hockey, which obviously is not an official, official sport now, but it was really fun at the time. (laughs) Um, You know, basketball and, and softball and ran track. And I really... I really feel like sports was just a way to express myself. And, um, you know, I was good at it. I was very athletic my, from my mom's side. Uh, my mom was incredibly athletic when she was younger, and I, and I definitely got that from her. And then my dad, he's quite a heady guy, um, you know, intelligent, does math in his, his brain, you know, in his head and all this stuff. And, and I I think that gave me like an acute awareness about things um, and then also the physical attributes of an athlete at a very, very young age. And so I just use sports to to express who I was. When you think about your athlete identity when you were growing up, what what role did it play in your life? Like how strong was was the fact that you were an athlete or others saw you as an athlete? You know, it's interesting. And in, in, as I get older and look back on it, I know that being physical, as in, you know, using my body to achieve aims, to, you know, create something, to to attain a goal, to just improve how it looks, how it feels, you know, fitness, or if I'm trying to get, you know, more, you know, more musculature, is is a lifelong thing so for me it it was about the sport and competing to a degree but it really was more about the feeling i got from being one way say on a you know in 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 the winter time and then endeavoring on this adventure and journey to change my body into what i wanted it to be almost like fine tuning over time and and trying to become almost becoming evolving into uh, a physical specimen that's different from how I started. I think that's that's really what it was and I didn't understand that when I was younger. Um, I think when I was younger, I was just playing sports because I was good at it. It was something to do. you know kids want to be active. the parents want the kids to be active. And I think you know that's really how it started but as I as I got older, I realized I got a lot of uh, a lot of pleasure out of starting a certain way, you know, in the beginning of a season and ending up a, a different way, you know, towards the end. And that really was the achievement for me. It wasn't really always the result um, that the team got. It was more about you know how could I contribute and how could I change. What role did it, it being a mission or having a purpose or a well defined goal play for you? I think as I as I got older, and I've always been very philosophical about my play, um, in particular about basketball and and soccer and goalkeeping, and in, in 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 particular for soccer, um, you know, just the way I played it was was very important. I was gonna be a certain kind of player a certain kind of goalkeeper a certain kind of basketball player for example goalkeeping my mission in goalkeeping literally was to make it look like your grandma could do it 
that was literally how I wanted to go about doing it. So what does that, what does that mean? What does that entail? What that means is I want to be cerebral about placing my defenders in places so that I don't actually have to do an emergency action, which is a dive. A dive is an emergency. So I, I tried to, to place my defenders in a way so that I would basically be sitting there with lemonade in my hand. And, and that's not, but that's, that's very, that's rare. <laughs> I, I realize that's rare. You know, nowadays it's like the goalkeeper that has the most saves in the game is lauded in, in a hero. And I'm like, um, that's actually bad. <laughs> more is not better in this case. Less is more. That's so interesting. Have you, so that makes me think like, I and we're going to get to this quite a bit later, but I actually want to ask it now so I don't forget do you think that's a, a strategy that you've had to use in translating to your own life? Like when you're, you know, you've faced some really tough things, especially in the last nine, 10 years. It's like what that makes me think of is is really having to see the strategy before your immediate action, right? And like, so actually trying to organize the things in your life so that you can approach the ultimate goal, which is not you know, getting a goal into the net or not actually stumbling and, and, and falling or letting a situation get the better of you. Is that something like, would you, I mean, do you see that having translated into your life or your life translating that to you as an athlete? I I do see it that way. I see that. I see when, when I have allowed things in my life to get too cluttered, too full, too much going on, um, too complicated then my quality of life is less and in in some cases a lot less when i take my eye off the focus of what it is i'm trying to achieve and if i take my eye off the fundamentals of everything and i'm talking about like you know basic stuff um i've realized that my life in times where i've had a lot of of clutter a lot of complication a lot of different things um, a transition is, is actually one of those times and things get confusing things, you know, dip and I'm not, I'm not in, in the best groove. Um, but when I am simplistic about my life, when I'm focused on, on what I'm trying to achieve, when I clear the channel and keep it simple and with the fundamentals, whatever it is, whether it's learning something new or, you know, going to the gym every day, you know, something as simple as being consistent which is really hard for a lot of things, but it's so simple as a concept. Um, then I, I get I get to where I want to go, wherever that is, um, and it applies to everything, everything. Um, you know, from learning something new to maintaining something that I've done forever to just being aware of my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions. You know, because if you're not aware of where you're drifting towards, then when you get there, you'll be like what's going on how did my life get like this but but awareness is is key and that is as simple as it gets this is i mean this is great i want i want to touch back on this in a little bit once we uh fast forward a bit in your story but i i wanted to take it back to soccer and how you so i know you went to uh umass amherst um and you played in high school and and throughout childhood but what was it about soccer so it sounds like you were a pretty good athlete um kind of all around or at least not just in soccer but what was it about soccer that made it stick so soccer um 
is interesting. A lot of people would be surprised to know that soccer really wasn't my favorite sport. <laughs> yes, I think they would. <laughs> <laughs> I actually liked basketball a lot more. That's so interesting. And yeah. And then also, even more than that, football. If I were born male, there'd be no question in my mind what I would have played. And all wow. the time, you know, football, tackle football for sure. But because I was female and it wasn't available to me, I, yeah. I didn't get the opportunity. So then I went with soccer. And the reason I decided to focus so much on soccer is because I loved being a goalkeeper. So even in that vein, when we actually put the put the spotlight on soccer, it's not even the soccer. Mm -hmm. It's the goalkeeping mm -hmm. that was was it for me. The ability to literally um, command the game from right. that position. No other position is like that. It's so cerebral. And it is. Yeah. And that's that's my dad, right? That's yeah. my that came from my dad, yeah. my athletic ability from my mom, and that's why I loved playing goalkeeper. Was the the chess match of it, um, and and the dynamic that you know was going on with with that position and and being able to literally like steal the game from the other team. Like I I loved <laughs> the feeling of you know a shot screaming into the corner and you know, that, that person, whether it was my teammate in training or the opposing, opposing team, putting their hands in the air as it's in flight and then coming out of nowhere at the last possible instant with, with a fingertip and, and knocking it away. <laughs> I loved that. <laughs> I'm like sweating as you're talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like, <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it took me a while to figure that out. I'm like, I guess I, I think I'm closet, uh, like a closet control freak <laughs> with the goalkeeping. And so, and then, so the other piece of it is, um, you know, I came from a family, didn't have a lot of money and I knew I would have to get a scholarship mm -hmm. if I was going to go to college. Mm -hmm. And the only way that I was going to get that for sure is athletically. So I was a better goalkeeper than I was a basketball player. I was all American goalkeeper in high school and only all state in basketball had a lot more offers and opportunity with, with soccer. And that's what I decided to do. And so it's, it's, it's really, you know, a very different road um, to, to a lot of my teammates on the national team when I played, but it's definitely different from, from now. So what, what were your plans for after college? So when you're in high school, let's say you're in high school or early in college, what were your plans? What did you, did you think like, what am I going to be when I grow up? Yes. I had, I had a couple of, of inspirations of what I wanted to be. Um, one of them was an architect. That's what I wanted to be when I was, you know, cerebral. Like, yeah. Yeah. When I was, when I was younger, I used to draw things, um, you know, on, on paper all the time, whether they were buildings or, or planes or, or whatever. And I love sketching and drawing. And it was really, really something that I was into and, and for no real reason, like just, it's just was, was an, in, an innate thing that I liked to do. And then I, I started to swing towards, um, the law. And so I wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> of all nice. Things, right. I wanted to be a lawyer. And my mom and dad were, were all about that because we were we were talked about this when I was in high school about maybe being a lawyer and then becoming a judge at some point, which would be really neat. I mean, that's amazing. Right. And yeah. So that's a kick ass that was job. My intention. Yeah, that was my intention. And and not to be you know, someone who played sport for a living, right. because at the time, if you recall, if you roll back being an Olympian back then um, 
wasn't professional. Right. It was amateur. Right. And so was I thinking I was going to play soccer for a living? No. At that time, I did not think that. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, duh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're talking, you know, 30, almost 30 years ago. Well, I mean, God, if you if you think about even just this summer, the 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 things that the women's national team were fighting for in terms of equal pay or at least uh, closer to equal pay. It's like yeah. the battle is not over. The battle rages on. Yeah. The battle. We, we just picked up the mantle in, in the 90s. Yes. Um, and, yes. And who knew who knew it would be this long? But if you look at it, it's not surprising that it's taking this long because it's literally a shift in power and and people with power don't want to give up power. Right. When did you start to realize that you could play soccer professionally? So I went um, to UMass Amherst on a soccer scholarship, like I said, because I I knew I needed that in order to even go to college. Mm -hmm. And that team was top 10 at at the time. And the coach there, Jim Rudy, was amazing. And who he had recruited one of my club teammates and my club team coach, his daughter. So um, she ended up going to UConn and I ended up going to UMass. So we were like high, highly competitive um, adversaries nice. at that point, which is very interesting <laughs> at that young age. It's weird, you know, when you go from, you know, being teammates for so many years to competitors. But yeah, it was fun. that's a hard shift. Um, yeah, it was a hard shift. And it wasn't until my sophomore year in college when Coach Rudy sat me down and he said, Bri, I think you're good enough to play on the national team. And I said, I didn't know there was one. <laughs> <laughs> tell me more. Because I didn't. Because I didn't. Yeah, tell me more, right? Like, so, because this was, um, I think, either the, the fall, I think it was the fall of 91. So um, it means that it was the... Um, year they won the World Cup uh, the first time in China in 91 and I didn't even know that there was a women's national team this I don't know if I if I think that that's cool or if that's like a little naive (laughs) but it's true I didn't know it existed even though I played soccer at a high level well, um, it, we didn't bizarre, have social right? media. We didn't have, you know, I don't know. It, it just hadn't caught on. I, I don't. Yeah, there was there was zero awareness. Right. Almost negative in the United States. Like literally, it was it was terrible. The awareness at the time. Um, we've come a long way, so that's right. Good. Yeah. Um, but you know, so I I didn't know until he told me that he thought I was good enough, and of course I trusted him, and he would he would know because he knew Anson Dorrance, who was the head coach of the women's team and UNC at the same time back then. Um, what, what to look for. And so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm up for it. If whatever, whatever coach. And, you know, I, I appreciated Jim. He, he was amazing. He took uh, a young girl who was long on athletic ability and, and very short on skill in terms of the best way, efficient way to play goalkeeper. And he taught me two things. He taught me feet, get your hands to the ball. And when you get to the ball, use two hands. (laughs) <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was the extent of of what it took from taking me a, a ball of clay and, and molding me, sculpting me into essentially an All-American by the time my senior year came around. It's amazing in, in what college. a good coach can do. Oh, my gosh. I, I know, right? It is it is so critical. It is so critical, good coaching. So um, you're known as being incredibly calm and focused as a goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Are you that way off the field as well, or were you? The answer is yes, but I was very vocal on the pitch 
and very no nonsense and 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 specific about what I needed and wanted to have happen. Mm-hmm. And I was I did not mix words. Um, and I'm I'm you know I have volume. So <laughs> I was a little scary <laughs> back in the day. Yeah, I just rewatched young... video of you yesterday. I, I was like, all these things were coming back to me. It's so cool to watch. Thank you, thank you. I was I was I was demanding, and so because I I knew that my defenders were exceptional. If I could put them at even with any attacker in the world, that they would come out on top ninety nine times out of a hundred. And so that was mainly what I was trying to do, and they knew that. And so I was very calm when it came to the bigger the game, the calmer I was. And that's that was just basically a, a, a mental toughness uh, mentality and psychology um, approach that I had. And I was able to really essentially harness, um, you know, nervousness and anxiousness, which I didn't even feel like I had any of that back then, um, into something that I could use on the pitch. And and I had you know, this presence about me, I still have that, um, you know, of calmness and my, you know, and, and my voice off the pitch, as you can probably tell, is rather calm. Mm-hmm. But on it, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> so that is different on and off. But my my demeanor and my disposition and my 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 essence of me is is calm on both on and off the pitch. Yeah, I mean, I experienced that the first time I was ever around you actually in person uh, when you went up mm-hmm. to that panel. You really do have quite actually a commanding and calming presence. And But when you start talking, it's very, um, you, you really hold a room. So I, I, I can see how you, it, I can see how that's still there from your playing days. It's It was cool to see. Yes, thank you, thank you so much. And I, and I don't really actually know um, where that came from. It, I've always just been that way. It's a gift. It is. I like it. I'll take it. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, the nineteen ninety nine World Cup that was a huge highlight in your playing career. At least from the outside, it was. Um, and you can tell me if it if it wasn't certainly. But what did that experience mean to you? That 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 win and the way you won. Oh, the 99 World Cup was absolutely amazing. So for me growing up and, and in my, uh, you know, pursuit of achieving my goal, which was to be an Olympian originally when I was since I was eight years old, I'd had that that ambition. And I achieved that in 96 with with the team mm-hmm. um, and obviously in an amazing and stunning fashion. And it's hard to top something like that. Right. But the 99 World Cup. I understood that it was so much bigger than just me and you know the 20 plus of us because what we were what we were trying to do was literally like you know pull back the curtain and show the people of this country women's soccer at its finest and that had never been done before so it was a brand new thing that we were trying to do and once we went from the small stadiums to the bigger stadiums um, and and basically for two years uh, promoted our game and 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 had people you know meet us and see us and get around us and and to have them be able to support us and know us um and then going into the first game at giant stadium and 
being in the bus and wondering where where all this traffic is coming from <laughs> and then realizing and then realizing it was for us and then we're in the bus acting like a bunch of you know 6 year old little schoolgirls like waving at everybody hi and taking pictures of people outside the bus and they're all the face painted and these little girls with the pigtails and they're screaming they're taking pictures at us and they're waving at us and we're waving at them and we're all like a little giddy and we get into the into the tunnel. We're like, okay, we got to play a soccer game. But we yeah. can't calm down. Yeah. But then going out of that of that um, canopy um, onto the stadium, and, and I mean, it's that is something that I'll never forget. Is the feeling, the way the crowd sounds when it's um, disconnected? Because people, when they're waiting for the game to begin and just talking and whatever, there's noise and it's not focused and it's very like sporadic. Mm-hmm. But once you walk out onto the pitch and they see you and then all of a sudden it's like a bunch of arrows pointing in different directions all point at you and the sound goes directly to you and the intention and the energy and you can really feel that um connection with the with the with the crowd that's wild and then i mean it was wild and we all just they played the anthem we all just started crying Yeah, we just started crying. It's getting so emotional because we weren't prepared for that. We'd never done that before, and it was finally—it's the difference between a dream and 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 a, and, a, and a possibility and actually living it. Mm-hmm. When you're actually in it, it's almost like you 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 build the house that you want to live in. That's your dream and your and your process towards it, and then it's like opening the door and walking inside. That's what it felt like coming out of that tunnel because we had worked for so long to create this stage for women's soccer in a place where there was nothing like it that existed. And we built that. It's wild. And yeah. And, and, and it's been, and the ripples are still being felt, you know, 20 years later of what we were able to do. Were there any downsides to that massive success? You know, I I honestly don't think there were any. Now, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So you can very easily go back and pick apart something years later or the next day even and find something wrong. Mm-hmm. But I am a glass completely full kind of girl. Mm-hmm. I mean, even as as vicious as I might have been on the pitch, I always knew that my team could win. And I felt that every time I went into a game. So I'm like optimistic as all get out. And so for me, I thought that the World Cup, because because like I said in, earlier, it did not exist. And then now it exists. Like that is truly the essence of creation, <laughs> where there was once nothing, now there is something. And the something was huge, you know? I mean, and it rippled. There was 90,000 people in that final. And that Rose Bowl sold out like in a blink. Yeah. Women's soccer in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. Yeah. So for me, when I look back at that, I'm just like, this is amazing. I mean, we got, we took something from the back alley and put it on front street. Yeah. For everyone to see. And they came and they stood there and they sat there and they participated in it. We birthed something. Yeah. And so for me, I don't I don't see I don't see anything wrong with that. Did it change how you approached anything? Um, no, not for me. I mean, I 
when we did that World Cup, we were very, you know, protected and we were focused as all all you could possibly be. We had sports psychologists, we had trainers, we had everyone, everyone had the same mission and goal at the same time. And the energy of that really brings you alive. I mean, there is yeah. nothing else like it in the world. Major tournaments now when I watch like the men, you know, training and playing and getting ready to do Euro 2020. I am just so like, oh, I can just imagine what it's like in the bus and the team meal room and all that. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah, it's really something to have experienced that. And so for me, when I look at something, whether it's a success or not, it, I don't look at it the same way. I don't think as most people do. I, I look at yeah. it on a on a creative level, on on a feeling level. Um, you know, could we have you know, maybe not gone to overtime. Well, yeah, but that wouldn't have been nearly as impactful and powerful had we not. Do you know what I mean? If you look at it from my success, yeah. from the success oh, of absolutely. a soccer playing team. God, it was so exciting. Right. Do you want to go zero zero and almost get scored on and, and, and knock out your, your, your best player, you know, at the end of the game. No, <laughs> you don't want to do any of those things, but we Not did and we did. Yeah. And, you know, do you, do you want your, your goalkeeper to have to go to a penalty kick shootout? No. But were we prepared for that? Heck yeah, we were. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you could have uh, a, a script writer in Hollywood could not have scripted that any better. No, it's pretty good. So I'm going to fast forward here uh, 10, 10, 11 years. Okay. Uh, to 2010. Yes. When you're one of the older women's soccer players, I think probably ever. Um, I, I actually don't know the stat on that. Do you? Ever to do what? To be still playing in the pro league. Um, I'm going to say at the time, maybe, but not since. Okay. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're 39, which is, I think, um, especially nowadays, probably considered you know, long in the old, tooth, <laughs> old, older, we'll yes. say. Um, and so you're still playing in 2010 when you suffered your career ending concussion. Um, and just to put it bluntly, why were you still playing? Ooh, good question. So I was still playing because I could. Mm-hmm. And also because at that point in time, I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do because I felt that window of being a lawyer had closed. Sure. And and I didn't necessarily want to be a coach. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to, to participate in that league, that new iteration of the league. So that was the second, the second uh, attempt at a women's professional league in the WPS it was the second time around. Okay. And I, I wanted to, to continue to play, um, I had a very disappointing end to my uh, national team career um, in 2008 at the Olympic Games as, a, as an alternate. And I wanted right. to continue and I wanted to see if I could write the ship and, and write the script and end it the way I wanted to. You were trying to end your career on your own terms. Yes, because the way things went in 2007 and 2008 at the international level were yeah. were not what I would have written for my own ending. Yeah. So what were you um did you have any plans for what you were what you would do next? So it sounds like you had uh <laughs> you'd closed off being a lawyer. Uh probably a good plan anyway. Yes. Um, 
But kind of what were you thinking for the future before before your injury, of course? What were you thinking? Yeah, I was going to probably either go into speaking, public speaking, um, mm-hmm. keynote and, and, and um, on the speaking circuit, which was a high probability for me since I had done a lot of media and I had done speeches in the past and I liked it. I enjoyed it. I, I, I was good at it and it, and it was, was a good contribution I, I thought was, was solid. So I was either going to do that and I was also considering um, broadcasting at the time. After this career-ending concussion, which, I mean, from what I've read, it was first it was brushed off, you take a couple days, then you were benched for a couple weeks, then it was a couple months, and now suddenly you find yourself at 39 without your pro soccer career. Who were you? I was a broken former professional athlete. That's who I was. The head injury, the hit, basically completely knocked my train off the track. And not only did it cause you know damage physically with physical symptoms like sensitivities and headaches and that kind of thing, but mentally it derailed the greatest asset that I had, which was my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and now my mind was the thing that was broken. And to be completely honest, I, I didn't even know what to do with myself. Um, and sadly, neither did doctors that were seeing me or, or the training staff, they didn't know what to do with me either that, you know, it was basically, oh, you'll be fine after a while. And like you mentioned, it went from days to weeks to months to, you know, season ending to career ending. Um, it took a long time. Um, and I just couldn't, couldn't get it right. And I didn't realize, and I don't think anybody realized at the time that, Sometimes when you have a, a, a hit like that, a concussion, a head injury, you have to reboot your mm-hmm. brain. And I don't think we understood that at the time. So they were thinking that it would reboot on its own. And in this particular time, it didn't. And I think the reason that my head injury was so bad, even though it didn't seem it at the time, is because I didn't see her coming. And she, yeah. and because of where she hit me. You know what I mean? Like previously, I've, I've had Abby Wambach land on my head before (laughs) and that was only a day that I was out Mm -hmm. of training and I think the part of the reason was that I saw her coming a and b you know the way she hit me it was different but I didn't see this 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 player coming at all Um, right and so the nature of it really really messed with with my with my mind and my my recovery and it I don't think the doctors understood it either so can you walk me through exactly what happened sure. during the game? Yes. Yeah, so we were Washington Freedom at the time. We were playing against the Philadelphia Independence at Philadelphia. And I was playing in the game. And it was about 10 minutes left in the first half. There was a low, somewhat hard shot taken by Lori Lindsay, who's actually um, went on to play um, on the national team. Really good person. Great, great person. And she was taking a shot and I was bending over to get it. So I'm down at the knee level of, of the players and their forward tried to get in there and, and nip it away with her toe and try to get it before it came to me. And I didn't see her and she saw me obviously, but she, she, she cut it way too close and hit me in the side of my head with her left knee. And then we both bundled over together. And my first thought was, do I have the ball? <laughs> did I make the save? <laughs> Little did I know. <laughs> yeah. That was the least of my concerns. 
Um, and then I stood up and I just stood there. And the referee was like, come on, keeper, play the ball. And I was like, oh, okay. And that's when I actually, right then I knew I was in trouble because I, I didn't, like, it was weird. Like, I was like, how could I not know what I'm supposed to do right now? You know what I mean? So I played mm -hmm. it out. And then the names on the backs of the jerseys started to get fuzzy. I started to, like, look around. And I knew where I was. And this is the interesting thing about questions with head injury. It's like, where are you? Do you know where you are? Well, I knew where I was. I'm in a uniform. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I can figure that out, right? I'm, yeah. There's signage. I'm, I'm, I'm on a pitch. I'm, I'm at a game. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and so... I continued to play, but the ball was really fuzzy. I, I started to feel a little sick and and I had pain on the right hand side where she hit me on my head. But then I also had pain kind of behind my left ear of a headache like starting and that was a little confusing. And the half ended um, and I was walking off the pitch and my trainer was walking towards me and I was kind of leaning to the left. I was like mm. angling left and she comes up to me and she grabs my hand and looks me in my eye and says, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not. And that's the last game I played. I remember walking up the, um, up the, the ramp to get to the gym area, the, the locker room area. I remember the doctor, the, the opposing team's doctor coming to look at me. And I remember thinking I have to be okay enough. I know I'm, not okay to go play in the game again, but I need to be okay enough so they don't keep me here overnight. That was a concern of mine, staying in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So I managed to like, you know, remember something <laughs> or talk my way out of it. Yeah. And, and yeah. cause they wanted to keep me and I talked my way out of it and got at home on the bus. And, you know, at the time, you know, somebody came to pick me up. My partner at the time came and picked me up, um, at, at the field and, and it just got worse, you know, that whole, you know, wake up every two hours kind of thing. And yeah, it, it was now we know that's stupid, but we didn't know then. I mean, it really is just a matter of unawareness. It's not it's not a, a bad thing that happened because anybody was having malice against me. It's just people just didn't know. Mm -hmm. Doctors didn't understand. And neither did I, obviously. And it just got worse and worse. I had sensitivity to light and sound and movement. I wasn't driving for that first you know, few days. I couldn't sleep. Um, I started to feel like an anxiousness, which to me was like very foreign. I, I didn't even understand what anxiousness was because I didn't experience any at the, up until that point. Wow. Um, and, you know, panic, kind of panicky, kind of like just being disconnected. It really was what it, what it boils down to is basically, you know, every athlete, especially I think, in a higher level, um, you have a sense of your body in, in space, right? You have a sense of where you are, of how it moves and how you're connected to, to things. And, and it's a, it's a sense, it's a sensation that I've always had and always known since I was young. And that was got unplugged basically. We talked about how level-headed you are, how calm you are, how strategic you are yeah. and cerebral. And after that, what, what did it feel like to be you? What, where was your head at? I was looking for it. It, it, it had, mm. it had eluded me. So my, my mind and my ability, my awareness, my, my sense of myself, really, you know, of who I was and what I could do 
which has always been so empowering for me ever since I was young. And my parents were always very supportive of anything and everything. Hmm. It was like that, that little, little, if it, if you were thinking of it as a train, that little car had derailed and fell, you know, fell off the cliff. <laughs> so yeah. here I am up here on the cliff looking for my sense of self and my connection in the dark. I couldn't find it. And, and I didn't understand what was going on because I'd had hits before and recovered in a couple of days at the most. And usually like no big deal, no, nothing like I was experiencing then with how I felt like almost like, um, like a, just a shell. And it was so instantaneous. Like it, the day before I was me and the day after I was someone else. What was rock bottom after this? Oh my, so so rock bottom came came over time. Um, when it wasn't getting better, when I wasn't re- recovering in the first like few months, it was pretty bad then, but it really got bad in 2011, so the next year. Um, I had become the general manager of, of Magic Jack, so the Washington Freedom was bought by gentleman who created the magic jack which is a voiceover um device for computers he Hmm. bought the team from the hendrixes and brought it down to west palm beach florida and i became the general manager for the team that year was by far the absolute worst year of my life not only was the job really difficult but the state of mind i was in i would come home from work cry and cry and cry and Thank goodness we were close to the ocean because I would go to the ocean like every day for a couple hours and just sit there and stare. And basically, I think I was looking for my 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 sanity is mm. what I was doing mm-hmm. because I I felt like a fake because the person that they knew, Brianna Scurry, wasn't this person that was there now. That's how I felt. I felt like I wasn't me. I couldn't I couldn't focus. I couldn't um, get rid of these headaches. I mean, I was literally in so much pain by the time the day ended because those those headaches were just so debilitating and just relentless. Every day for three years, I had a headache at the exact same spot. Mm-hmm. You know, the sensitivities got better, but but I couldn't, almost like I couldn't learn. Um, it's the best way I can describe it. The cognitive issues I had, um, vision was even a problem. And I was just trying to get through a day I was the general manager of that team, and then I actually ended up, I had made a deal with ESPN to commentate for the 2011 World Cup in Germany. So I went to, to Germany for 30 days and tried my best to, to put coherent sentences together, you know, and, and contribute to the, to the sports team that was, you know, broadcasting this, covering this amazing event that I, you know, had held so close to my heart. And I, I felt like I was outside myself. Um, I'd go into my hotel room after every, um, you know, studio session and cry, Mm. have all these pieces of paper of all these statistics and this information about the teams that the USA was playing or who I would be covering that day, just trying to learn, you know, what the tendencies were and, and literally like read it and try to remember it and retrieve it was literally impossible for me to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was 
horrible. And then so the worst of it was when I got home after the World Cup, I moved to New Jersey, this tiny little studio apartment. And my, my life was like falling apart, like piece by piece. Like every place I went, like a piece was dropping off. Mm. Um, and then I got to this, this area, Little Falls, uh, New Jersey, and I was in the studio apartment. And I knew that if I didn't get my act together soon, that I might be lost forever, meaning mm. I was going to kill myself. Mm. And and I know people are like, uh, but <laughs> trust me, I know what it feels like for someone who seemingly is successful on the outside has that kind of thought mm -hmm. and, and kind of like more than just a thought, almost like a plan developing. Yeah. to to you know early demise i mean i i know what that's like and and that was my rock bottom and what kept me going is two things one was you know i had to take this walk every day that that was the that was my my ability to to minimize and to uh, make it more efficient and how how can i survive this okay i can go walk every day so that's what got me up in the morning i had to go for a walk and then the second mm -hmm. thing was um, I couldn't kill myself because someone would have to tell my mom. And that at that time she was suffering from Alzheimer's and she was really struggling. And, you know, one of my nieces and my sister were, were staying with her, but my mom was really struggling and I could not for the life of me bring myself to kill myself and then have somebody have to tell her wow. that her daughter, her baby was gone. I couldn't bear it. Yeah. And that kept me going. That was rock bottom. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, what, uh, I know you had a, a surgery in 2014 that removed scar tissue, I think from, was it your occipital nerve? Yes, actually. So the very end of 2013, um, I had the procedure done called uh, bilateral occipital nerve release which it basically means is there's a nerve that runs behind um, each ear called the mm -hmm. occipital nerve. And apparently, um, based on the way she hit me with her knee and the way my, my head was, was positioned, the hit did damage to both nerves um, because of the way my head moved, but especially on the left-hand side behind my left ear. So that was the source of all those headaches that I was having. It was kind of bizarre. And so my doctor um, tested me to see if this procedure might work. And it turns out the results were favorable that I would be a good candidate for the procedure. So I did it. And I basically felt relief right away. I essentially had the nerves of a 65 year old man. They were little, mm. like they were clumped together, mm -hmm. like little balls of like just string clumped together is what it looked like he said that he dug out of my head so i have two two inch incisions in the back of my head where they they took them out on both sides they sound like they're those incisions are worth it they were um, worth it yeah <laughs> considering where i was going and, and the hell i was in absolutely yeah. i was willing to do whatever it took at that point so talk me through how you um um pulled yourself out of this incredibly low rock bottom place you were in where what what did you do like what what what's happened since then how how are you how'd you pull yourself out of it so the truth is i didn't pull myself out of it um back then before the surgery 
occurred, the insurance company didn't want to pay for it. Mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't afford afford it, obviously. It was experimental for one, and it was obviously very involved. And so it was you know, tens of thousands of dollars it would have cost me, and I didn't have the money. And I was in a really bad place, obviously. And my former partner, Naomi, who we had broken up a few years before that and were really good friends still, she met someone who she thought could help me. And she met them through a Kickstarter campaign that her and her um, partner had for their company called Tomboy X. And so they had a Kickstarter campaign and one of the more excited participants of that campaign was a woman named Chris Azizos. She participated in the Kickstarter campaign and then Naomi and Fran met her in person for dinner. And Naomi, knowing I was struggling with this with this uh, insurance company paying my, my surgery bill, um, Krissa owned a PR firm. And Naomi, in her most ingenious of ingeniuses, had an idea and said, thank God um, to Krissa, I have a friend I think would really use your help. Um, will, you, will you talk to her? And that is the beginning of the light. Um, was and Krista is who? Sorry, Chris is my your wife. Chris right? is my wife. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, she is. And what what role did she play in this? Sorry, just so oh, no I'm worries. on track. No worries. So she she owns a PR firm. So when she participated oh, okay. in the Kickstarter with their campaign um, with Tomboy X that Naomi and her partner had started, she became an investor. And Naomi asked her to help me with my thing. Ah, uh, to help you bring awareness to your situation and get the surgery. Yes, so that the, oh, the insurance company would move with, that's with public pressure to, to, to do the right thing. That's brilliant. Yes, and that's that's how we met through Naomi's genius and began to work that way with getting the insurance company on board. And then shortly after, you know, Chris and I talked on the phone, she started getting things moving. And I finally did get the surgery. You know, they did the right thing. They cleared it. And then she began to basically helped me, you know, get back on my feet by, you know, talking to people. She got a amazing uh, hit with Washington Post on doing a story about my my journey and my plight with yeah, my concussion. Read it. Yeah, it's and amazing. that that was up for a Pulitzer, that article. Oh, it's an amazing article. Yeah. They they hung out with me for a couple of weeks um, on that and really did a fantastic job. And that basically launched me back into my life. Oh, so I so, did. I did. I had help <laughs> getting back. Yeah. Well, it sounds like to me, and I, I, I want to hear it from you. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds to me like you lost your identity for a while. I did, definitely. I couldn't find it anywhere. And then when you came back after this surgery, and you're on your road back. Who were you? What was your identity? And, and what is it now? What are, where are you? So during that time, because I had hoped that this surgery was going to help me because I trusted Dr. Crutchfield, who was going to do the surgery with his partner, Dr. Duchik, I trusted them. And then Krissa was now helping me. And things were starting to move in a direction that I felt again, mm -hmm. something sparking me. And I really, I really feel like it was love, essentially. And hmm. 
I knew that I was coming back. I don't know how I knew it, but I was basically being rescued from the abyss. And I read an article during that time before I had my surgery about female soccer players. I mean, obviously with the head injury, you know, there was a lot of head injury stuff I was reading about and whatnot. And I read this article um, saying that 50% of female soccer players are going to suffer a concussion at some point in their career. And I was like, wow. Mm. that's really really high and actually i thought to myself that's low for national team players or you know yeah. elite players right. and then i realized you know i was like you know i've been in the in the abyss for three years with this situation and i essentially almost disappeared completely i have to make this mean something i decided that and mm -hmm. i was going to be an advocate so now at that point, I identified as an advocate mm. for something that chose me, not something that I chose. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew that it would be therapeutic for me to talk about it. And I knew that if I had this much trouble as a two-time Olympic gold medalist and a World Cup champion and getting some help with this, with this head injury that I can only imagine the turmoil people must be going through to try to get help for their kids or themselves or whatever, you know, anyone else, everybody else. Mm -hmm. So, and also I knew that the face of concussion at that point, at the very least, and it wasn't a whole lot, but somewhat were NFL football players, not women's soccer players, not women at all. Right. Really? <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to become that person. I, I wanted to share what I had gone through so that I could help people. And so that feeling of wanting to contribute and help is really what started to rekindle again. And I knew the best way I could help people was sharing something that I, I had experienced, not hypothetically speaking, but something I had gone through. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what started. So I think I identified as advocate and inspiration and creation, which I think was always an underlying theme of my life to inspire mm -hmm. and create. And I just found a new way to do it. So when did you realize how important an identity was to you? Mm. Or was it? Yeah, I, I don't want to actually force that on you no no it, it i think it's incredibly important because it helps you navigate into spaces and situations and things that will bring you joy that bring you a feeling of contributing that basically helps the needs the basic needs that you have in your life you know variety and security and feeling of contribution and love and all of those things are a product of having an identity and knowing what it is but i will also say that having an identity at any one time does not necessarily mean that that's the only one you'll ever have yeah um and actually it probably shouldn't be because mm -hmm. if it is it's probably going to end up disappointing the heck out of you at some point <laughs> you know i, like I mean it will because i mean it's, it's the it's for me it's the underlying purpose of my life, and it has to, you have to get down to that kind of depth, is to create and inspire. Now, how do I create and inspire? There's a, a million ways I could do that. If I don't know what my identity is and who I am, 
I don't know how I'm going to be able to express myself in the best way that I feel as to why I'm here in the first place. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's important, but I don't think it's necessary to be too, too specific about it because it's going to evolve over time. Yeah. So what advice would you offer to people wrestling with um, a, I'm going to put it two ways. What advice would you offer to people wrestling with either mental health struggles or brain health struggles? Mm. So in my particular case, what got me fortunately out of the situation I was in was essentially being relentless about feeling there was a possibility of me getting better. Mm. Because if I had bought into the disparaging, you know, forecasts and diagnoses and, you know, predictions and feelings of all these well-meaning doctors, don't get me wrong, I'm not a doctor hater, but don't tell me that this is the best my life is going to get. Because mm. there's no way, or, or and don't tell me that I'm I'm within the normal range. When my range, before I got cracked in my head, was way off the chart, mm-hmm. and now just because I'm in front of you and you're telling me that I'm within the normal range, my range was never normal in the first place. Mm-hmm. So to be within the normal range is is bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's yeah, not just good not, enough for you. No, it's not because if I ho- if I was able to hone my ability to focus so high compared to the normal range, that's what made me elite in the first place. Yeah. So to tell me that I'm in the normal range, I'm not, you know, I'm not bad mouthing anybody who is, but that's not me. That's all mm-hmm. I'm saying. Yeah. And so I, I need more, I need more, you know, help. I need, I need someone who understands it better. I need, so I would say my number one thing is, is to, to believe in who you are and what you, what you feel you can achieve and, and, and become. And if, if, if it's less than how it was before, then feel and, and pursue, you know, wellness and, and healthier and, and try to get someone who will help you get that way. It'll help you get back to that. That's the thing. I mean, unfortunately the medical field, and it's much better now, thank goodness, you know, people stop. If a doctor says that that's as good as it gets, people are like, oh, okay. So who are you now? Oh, who am I now? I am a force of nature in pursuit of creation and inspiration of millions of people in the next 40 years of my life. That's who I am in my essence. How, how do I express that? I express that by being as phenomenal a wife, a mother, bonus mom is what my kids call me, uh, a coach, uh, uh, a trainer, whatever I'm doing at the best as I possibly can. But I also express that by being connected to the universe and meditating and, and you know, using my body in a physical way and being as balanced as I can at any one time. For me now, I am really good at balancing where 100% of my focus needs to go at any given time. And I, and I am I am like a thousand suns on something. And it's focused completely. My wife, I mean, when it's my wife and I time, holy cow, there's nothing else existing in the world other than her. 
when I'm with my kids and we're doing the thing and I'm in, I'm in, the, in the car taking my daughter to, to school this morning, it's 100% focus on her and nothing else exists. When I'm working, you know, and I'm doing a speech on the road, I pour everything I have into that hour of time into every single person in that room and no one else exists. See, that's how I live my life now. One, I have one final question for you. I know we're a little over, but what's your, um, after everything you've been through, which is just insane, what's your relationship with your athlete identity? You know, I am, like I said, I am evolving and soccer goalkeeper, Brianna Scurry, I will always love and appreciate her. And I will always have that in my heart that that's what I did, but that's not mm-hmm. who I am. I am so much more than that. I am huh. who I am now because you have to evolve. Like I said earlier, you, your identity has to evolve over time uh, on the surface part of it anyway. The depths of it can be the same. You know, For me, it's inspiration and creation. And to be honest, it's that for everyone. It's the same. It's just in a different way and how you, how you are expressing it and how it manifests itself in your life. It's different, but the essence is the same. And I am, you know, now someone who, when somebody meets me, I want them to feel after they meet me, like, you know what? I'm glad I met her. She was, she was a good person. I, I, I liked her energy. She, she made me feel good in the time that I was in her presence. That, to me, is the most important thing right now. And I want that for my kids. I want that for my dog. I want that for everybody I meet. Well, it worked on me. (laughs) Good. We're on a roll then. I love it. So how can people find you? Ooh, people can find me. So I have my my personal website, bryscurry.com. So it's B-R-I-scurry.com. On there, you can see all kinds of cool stuff, what I'm up to, what I'm doing. Um, and if you want to reach out to me to do a speaking engagement, I love doing speaking engagements. I talk to corporations and um, organizations, colleges for any manner of things. I mean, fortunately, my life is pretty broad, so I can talk LGBT community uh, issues, diversity, sports, women's all that stuff um that's what i do for the lion's share of my income now is speaking and um in the future in 2020 uh things are pivoting and evolving so uh when i get more clarity on that i'll let you know but you can find me at byscurry.com well bry thank you so much this is just um amazing this i i think this is so powerful hearing you talk about this and and your long, long and winding career. Um, It's really inspirational. I thank you so much. Thank you for for having me. And um, I want to say also that um, the best of luck and I I have complete confidence that you're going to be able to achieve everything you're setting out um, for this podcast to be. And it sounds to me like you have it in your heart. Oh, well, thank you. And I I have complete confidence. Thank you. You're welcome. And and anything I can do to help you, I'm, I'm here to do that. That was my interview with Brianna Scurry, two-time Olympic gold medalist and a force of nature in her own words. Sport has given her so much, taken a lot from her, and helped her get back on her feet. I think that's one of the things I get most out of doing these interviews is how these stories of giants in the sports world 
are really just great lessons for all of us in how to get through really hard experiences. I did some research in advance of this episode and was really surprised to learn that for women, soccer actually causes more concussions than any other sport. I had no idea. A study that came out in the Journal of Pediatrics last November shows that girls actually have the same level of risk for a concussion in soccer as boys playing football. That study has actually led other women soccer players like Abby Wambach, Megan Rapinoe, Michelle Akers, and Brandi Chastain to actually pledge to donate their brains to science when they die. Yeah, I think it's really great that more and more studies are coming out on the effects of concussions and TBIs in young athletes. And it's going to lead to hopefully some solutions for how we can keep kids in sport but keep them safe. And that's our show for today. Join us next week when I go in an entirely new direction and explore performance anxiety among male athletes. But it's not the type of performance that you might initially think. I was being recognized as some kind of sex symbol, and yet sex and intimacy were, at that point in time, extremely difficult for me. So it felt like a hypocrisy. That's Jason Rogers, Olympic silver medalist in fencing. That episode will launch next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, as our episodes do every week. Thank you to Claire Collins, who runs our social media when she's not training at the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista, and Brad Gulick, our designer. A reminder that we are entirely self-funded at the moment, so if you like what we're doing and you've got the extra change, please go to the donate section of our website. We make it pretty obvious where you can donate. You can also help us by recommending us on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. And coming soon, we'll have merchandise. And as always, we want to hear from you. Drop us an email with questions or suggestions for one of our next guests at hello at humbledpodcast.com. As always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.